All right, so we're going to get going here. Um, the idea for this presentation kind of comes in, in two parts. The first was the arrival of my beloved puppy, Ginger. You like her glamour shot? Better than anything I've ever taken is a picture of my dog. Instagram worthy. There she is again on the front porch. Um, that's her hanging out uh, by, it was, she was just a baby puppy there, hanging out by our little town store. And um, she is incredibly cute, but of course puppies are difficult because they don't know any better when you bring them home at eight weeks. They need some training. And so we took Ginger to puppy class, and um, it was delightful. Um, she didn't really learn anything, but they, at the puppy class they gave us one of these. You guys ever seen one of these before? It's a dog clicker. It makes noises. And it's interesting because with this clicker, the way you work to train a dog is that every time the dog does what you want it to do, you make the clicking noise and then you give it a treat. So every time Ginger sits on command, as soon as her butt starts to move towards the ground, she gets a click and she gets a Cheerio. And we have been successfully able to teach her the command to sit. She knows how to sit. Now whether she listens to us or not is another story, but she knows how to sit. And uh, what I, this is the exact example of what Alfie was talking about upstairs of what we don't want to do. This is a Skinner-based method of teaching animals how to do things. It works for dogs. We are not dogs. And yet, um, I was listening to the Hidden Brain podcast a few, about six months ago, and there was this segment from the show about a really creative use of dog clickers um, in surgical training. Let me see if I've got the AV running here. Martin Levy loves to play frisbee. He gets a kick out of all the cool, weird moves you can do with a flying disc. But one throw stymied him for 30 years. It's known as the forehand wrist flip. I had coaches waving at me, telling me to change the position of my hand, screaming at me while I was throwing, and the disc still failed. It still rolled over. The thing that I knew was that the position of my hand was critical. My thumb had to be lower than my pinky in order for this to work. In 2012, he decided to try something different. He put a net in front of a mirror and watched himself as he threw the frisbee. And what became immediately evident was my thumb was higher than my pinky. Okay. Now what I could do was to walk over to the mirror and I could put my thumb in a position where it was below my pinky. Well, in doing that, I could feel what my forearm felt like. I could feel the stress in my forearm. I could feel how my wrist felt. And now I could throw at the mirror and make sure that my thumb was under the pinky. The feedback from the mirror was allowing him to see what he was doing wrong and to fix it in real time. So here I'm teaching a skill. I'm teaching it to myself. And by mirroring that, I could feel what it felt like and now execute. Levy decided to take what he'd learned into his day job. He's an orthopedic surgeon who's been fixing broken athletes for more than 40 years. Levy teaches residents the basic skills of orthopedic surgery, which look a lot like carpentry. He felt that if he could provide the same kind of non-judgmental, instantaneous feedback that the mirror had given him, his residents might learn skills faster. Since a mirror was too bulky to haul around, Levy turned to another tool, a red plastic clicker. It sounds like this. Clickers have been used for many years to train animals. So I'm going to reach up here, give her a little tap on top of her rump. And when she steps that leg in, I'm going to give her the marker signal, and then I'll give her a reward. 
to mark the precise moment a horse or a dog does something that the trainer wants the animal to do. If you have a treat and you hold it over your dog's head, most likely as you lift the treat up, the dog's butt will go down. Animals associate clickers with treats. They're a form of motivation. And the moment you're going to click is when you see the muscles of the back legs moving into the sit. The residents Levy was teaching didn't need motivation. They already had a burning desire to become surgeons. But by marking the precise point a resident positioned a drill properly or tied a knot correctly, Levy felt the clicker could behave like a kind of mirror. Here we have two types of drills, one a smaller one in which... I'm standing in a little workshop Levy has designed at the Bronx Montefiore Medical Center in New York. It's crammed with orange Home Depot buckets, saws, drills, wood, and rope. On this day, Levy is teaching resident Zachary Scharfman to tie a slider knot. It's used widely in orthopedic surgery. Levy shows Scharfman how the knot is tied. All right, first, this is what it looks like. He demonstrates on a length of rope. Okay, and that's a completed knot. So let's go build that. At the precise moment Scharfman performs each step correctly, Levy marks it with a click. The tag point is over. We're going to do it five times, and each time that you hit the tag point, I'm going to mark it with the marker. And if you would say it as you're doing it, one-third over two-thirds. One-third over two-thirds. And if you do it again, please. After five successful clicks, they begin the next step, and then the next, until they reach the final step. One-third over two-thirds, over and through, fakie pinch, backside grab, dress the knot, deliver. Bingo. Thank you. What strikes me as I watch this is the complete absence of the kind of feedback you usually get from teachers. There's no, great job, or well done. There's no, that's wrong, or what are you doing? Levy thinks that eliminating both praise and criticism can help students focus on the tasks they're learning rather than on what their teacher thinks of them. This is why I use the clicker. It is baggage-free. It is emotional-free. Wow, isn't that interesting? So he, this, this brain surgeon, Martin Levy, who's here in New York somewhere, presumably not in this room. Martin, anybody? No. Uh, he's, he was so interested in helping his uh, orthopedic surgeon students learn how to do the correct knots, learn the correct technique. And he recognized that all of this baggage about praise and criticism was getting in the way. The only thing that matters is whether they were going to do the exercise correctly or not. And so he turned to this very odd Skinner box thing, but he took all the Skinner out of it. He took it just to say, I want to communicate to you that you have done it correctly. And it was important for this professor, this professor of um, orthopedic surgery, to figure out some way of helping his students learn that didn't have, as Alfie talked about, the, the sort of existential angst that comes with a life of praise and also the crushing defeat that comes from words of criticism. He successfully was able to navigate that. And that's kind of a vision of what I want us to do today. I want us to lean into that. How do we teach the basics of the Christian faith in such a manner that we honor this law-gospel distinction that Mockingbird talks about? That the law is always accusing, that measurement is the opposite of love, and that God's attitude towards us um, as his people it doesn't depend on how well we navigate life. That's what I really want us to work through today. And so uh, to make it more classroom-like, um, People don't like to talk, especially in groups they don't know, but we all are here at Mockingbird. We have something in common. So I'm going to throw questions out. And um, if you, I don't show of hands, how many teachers in the room of some capacity? 
rock on. You guys know how awkward it is when you stand and you ask questions nobody answers. So like, teacher karma, help me out here, right? Exactly. Um, uh, I want to ask this question. Let's get a couple of answers on, on, the, on the floor here. Um, what's the best or worst teacher you ever had in school? What made that person the best or the worst teacher? Someone, someone just throw up a hand. Tell me a story. Oh, right here, yes? They love their subject. Love their subject. They're passionate about their subject, right? Over oh, here. Worst. worst, go for it. Which was a, a math teacher in seventh grade who like basically taught material and not individuals. Right. It was like a, it was a crushing blow to me to be like, oh, I'm, I'm an idiot in right. this subject. Do you work with math now at all? Yeah, didn't think so. <laughs> Anybody else? Best or worst teacher story? I had the exact same experience and the exact same brain. <laughs> right, right. It's all in the book. Right. Oh, yeah, right. I can't climb the rope. Anybody else climb the rope? Metaphor. Ah, all right. Um, uh, for me, it was Mr. McGuire. He was a teacher who encouraged me to be different, that I was, he knew I was a Christian and my school was not very Christian, so he encouraged me to kind of own that. And uh, that was really great, even though I'm not sure he was Christian himself. And Miss um, Erickson, uh, one time, uh, she put me in timeout. And as you all can uh, attest from upstairs, I, I, will, I will attest too, uh, it's, I'm still scarred by it. Because she never told me why I was in timeout. I had to sit with my head down on the desk while everyone else got to go forward for story time. And like, I still don't know. And it's driving me nuts. If any of you know Miss Erickson from Richmond, Virginia, like, <laughs> I, need, I need to reconnect with this for healing. Um, What's the best or worst church class or church study you've been a part of? Mm. Go with best. Anybody want to share best, a good one? I'm hearing laughter. Let's share the bad ones. <laughs> what makes a bad one? What about it was made it bad? Right. A lot of shame for not measuring up, right? Anybody else have something similar? I'm seeing nodding heads. Maybe we're just so like traumatized by these bad experiences. For me, um, I was part of a group, um, Every Young Man's Battle. That was a big evangelical purity culture thing in the 90s. I was part of a group. And all we did was shame each other because we couldn't uh, keep our lust under control. That was a pretty bad group. Any, any good experiences? Let's get one good one on the board over here at least. Yeah. Um, college ministry, Canterbury, uh, through Fruit Parish mm -hmm. Church. Pretty incredible. We had um, the, it was student-led Bible study, and um, I don't know. Just there was a really welcoming atmosphere, and there isn't like a strategy that I could name or something. But it was just such an open environment where everyone was welcome to experience church and the gospel in their own way. That it just right. was such a great right. time. I'm hearing a pattern here, right? Because the pattern, what I'm hearing is when you were welcomed and you were welcomed as yourself and you got to engage with the material in your own terms, things went really well and you took a lot away from it. But when you were held up to a standard and you had to measure up to that standard, um, it was pretty shame-inducing. You were kind of glad when the class is over and you could move on without people judging you, as opposed to just quitting in the middle of it, right? Any other thoughts on that, like good or bad church experiences? Yeah, a good, a good uh, Bible study experience I've been part of is like one where the, um, there wasn't uh, the know-it-all person that told everybody what they were supposed to get. Like, so we're going through Isaiah, for example. Right. And that's like, it's easy in those books to get very 
we have to tell you the geography and the historical, political. <laughs> sure. And so what was helpful was we usually somebody would have one of those, you know, study itself Bibles so it has mm. notes. Yeah. But it kind of reminded me of the clicker because no no one person possessed the special knowledge that mm. So actually right. the conversation was more open to people say, saying, Oh, this this verse here struck me like he says, you know, shaking like, you know, whatever the metaphor is being used there, right. that they would speak to that and then that would open up more conversation. And then if we did have well, wait, now who's, who are these people, or what's this talking about? Then you right. still have the resource, but it wasn't owned by a singular person. Right, so you don't have this hierarchy of who knows the Bible and who doesn't, and so people don't feel judged by that. That's, that's wonderful. So I'm wondering then, how have you seen churches motivate people in their faith? Like, is there a way that you've seen churches, what tools do the church have as it is exposure to get people, as Alfie was talking about, to be motivated whether in, intrinsically or extrinsically, we'll use both of those pieces of language. Uh, what tools have you seen the church use to make that happen, good or bad? Yeah. Uh, finding your purpose. You have a unique design, you need to find your purpose. Right, right, right. So there's a sense of which there is this introspection in which the church is inviting you to connect with the story of the gospel on how God created you, right? Todd, did I see your hand back there? Profane is food. Food, right? Um, say more. How, how so? Well, you have food with a given event, right? Uh, dinner, meal—it's a gift to the participants, right? Um, yeah, which engenders a community conversation, fellowship, right? And there, that's the positive side to it, right? We get food, like how we're going to have pizza, and then there's the flip side, which is, hey, we're going to have pizza, and then we're going to surprise, bait and switch. Here's a Bible study at the other end of it. But food, absolutely, we use food right here. Yes. Uh, I feel like, like thirty years ago, it was just do what was right because what's right. Yeah. Now I experience more like uh, do it because the gospel motivates you, which is a little bit better, but still right. a lot of drawbacks. Yeah, there's this heavy law component, right? So they really want to sort of um, impress upon you the importance and say, well, if they put these conditional statements, if you really believe the gospel, then you're going to act in this way. Or if you really believe in this faith, you're going to do this, right? Yeah. I think empowering people and letting them take leadership roles mm -hmm. as white people and letting them have ownership. Right, right, right. Again, you're inviting people to come in on their own terms and really respecting them as individuals and how they're gifted and how they can contribute. Any other thoughts on that? Like how the church kind of brings people in? I had a couple others I can share. One was um, the church motivates people by shame um, if it's doing it incorrectly. The church can be very shame-inducing, and some people have that baggage from their spiritual experience. Um, but I've also seen praise and reward, too. Anybody ever do a Bible bee or seen a Bible bee be done in their community? Um, you memorize Bible verses, you get up and you recite them. Um, that those are all different options that we have. Any other options we can think of? Um, the, uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that kind of carrot and stick model. Um, the phrase carrot and stick, Alfie mentioned it earlier. Let me dive into that phrase because what we're talking about with carrots and sticks, um, I always thought that you put the stick on the carrot, or the stick hanging on the carrot, you put it out in front of the horse. That's not what that phrase actually means, right? Um, the, the, the carrot is leading the horse with an incentive that's positive, and then the stick is the whip to beat the horse into moving forward. Um, and so, can you guys think of any opportunities when carrots and sticks would be an appropriate way to motivate someone? Not after that last talk, probably. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's the question I should have thrown out after the last talk, I was, I was doing that. Um, but we all have this idea that carrots and sticks here, uh, they 
are the de facto mode of motivation. If you teach in a school, grades. If you're in a church, maybe it's ice cream for coming to the event. If you're in your workplace and your workplace has incentive programs, you know what those are like. And that is default mode America. And for those of you who are international, I can't speak to your situation, but I imagine it's pretty similar. Um, that, that this idea of how we motivate people, as Alfie has said, has a lot to do with carrots and sticks. But here's the problem I'm trying to solve today. Um, as I read the Old Testament, one of the, 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 it's an incomplete story, but one that I think is helpful is that this is a story where God in the Old Testament uses carrots and sticks to motivate the people of Israel. And if you follow the rules outlined in the Sinai Covenant as Moses brought it down, God says that you get to keep this piece of real estate that we now call Israel, this land in the ancient Near East. And this is Deuteronomy 28. This is a famous passage in that part of Scripture that is known for its famous covenant blessings and covenant curses. And the summary of that passage, real quick, is that if Israel keeps to the rules, then their kids will be blessed, their grandkids will be blessed, their crops will be blessed, their herds will be blessed, their business will be blessed, good rain, good harvest, international notoriety, and you'll have so much money, it even says, that people will come to Israel for loans, that Israel will not have to indebt itself whenever they have a building project. That is what Deuteronomy 28 says will happen if Israel keeps the covenant. So we're talking about the Ten Commandments, but also the food laws, also the clothing laws, also the worship laws. It's a pretty big carrot. It's basically every temporal thing in your life is going to turn out great if you just follow these rules. And if that weren't enough, there is also in the same chapter of Scripture a very large and dangerous-looking stick. If we don't keep the covenant, says God, um, he will put away uh, the carrots and pull out the sticks Cursed will be their kids, cursed will be their grandkids, their crops, their herds, their businesses, no rain, uh, bad harvests. They'll become an international laughingstock. They will be impoverished. And eventually, God says, if it gets too bad, we're just going to kick you out of this land. That your occupancy of this place, this land of milk and honey, is based on your obedience to this particular covenant. And you don't get any bigger carrots and sticks than that. God's promise to Israel was everything good will, be happy, will happen to you if you keep the covenant. Everything bad will happen to you if you don't. And the people of Israel had it all written in stone. And they still didn't do what God commanded of them. They did not keep to the covenant. And if you read the story from Genesis all the way through, you'll see a people whom God desperately wants to keep the covenant that prophets come in to tell Israel to shape up over a span of like 500 years. And of course, in 586 BC, um, Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians. It was God's great eviction. Um, that it was the big sick. It was the last straw. And so the carrots and the sticks, you see, if you look at them in the Old Testament, there wasn't a motivation enough to keep Israel in the promised land, whether that was the positive incentive of the carrot or the negative incentive of the stick. And of course, the gospel, of course, is that in Jesus Christ, we find God putting away the carrots and sticks. There's no more extra blessing for right activity, no more curses for wrong activity. It's just faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, that's it. Forgive all the sins and to hell with anybody who doesn't actually want the only free lunch offered in the history of the universe, right? Like that is what God does in the New Testament. He says, we're done with carrots and sticks. 
because I would assume you could intuit, at least I do, that it doesn't work the other way. So why is that when we try to teach new Christians who come into the church, or when we teach children in Sunday school, or we put together a Bible study, or even when we talk to people who aren't inside the church about our faith, we go back to leaning on this method of motivation with carrots and sticks in education that God has already given up on. Why do we use carrots and sticks to motivate Christians into better behavior? Again, this is why Alfie Coyne is such a great resource, excuse me, Cohn, why he's such a great resource is because he's from the secular world. He has the social science to back up what we already know from scripture, that this stuff doesn't work. He outlines in his book, um, Punished by Rewards, there are five reasons, and he mentioned a few of them earlier, so we're going to breeze through these, that rewards and punishments are suboptimal ways of motivating. So here's his book. It's upstairs at the book table if you guys want to go grab it. It's been a great read. The first is that he talks about how rewards actually punish. What he means by this is that if you have a reward that goes something like this, if your grades are good, I'll give you $20. That is psychologically and experientially the same proposition is if you don't get a good grade, you're going to lose $20. Those are two sides of the same coin, as he said, that um, when you are in this place of, of trying to motivate people with rewards, it's functionally and emotionally, experientially, it's no different from a punishment. That those two things are flip sides of the same coin. The second piece, he talked about this too, that rewards rupture relationships. He talked about the power dynamics that come, that somebody is generally the the rewarder and the rewardee, that there's power and control involved, and that when you put people in competition with one another, they tend to have less optimal outcomes as a result of the competition the people who are working with this um, from a different place other than competition. Um, Also, and I thought this was fascinating, he didn't touch on this one, was that rewards ignore reasons. What he means by that is that instead of trying to actually deal with the underlying issue that's causing a problem, you go to the carrots and the sticks for motivation. Um, Ethan Richardson, he he mentioned his um, two years of teaching in a teaching program in New Orleans. It was Teach for America. And um, he wrote in one of the Mockingbird uh, magazines a massive essay about how it broke him because he's trying to teach these inner city urban kiddos what they need and to get them to measure up to the statistics that he was taught to hold them to. Um, And it killed him because what he realized was like their parents aren't home, Um, that somebody in their family died from gun violence. And the reason why they're not doing well is not because he as a teacher can't motivate the kids. The reason why the rewards and punishments aren't working is because they are ignoring the real problem at hand. And so if everything is about metrics and rewarding people who meet them, you really aren't interested in anything other than what's going on in the classroom as opposed to the whole person. Same goes for the poor performer at work who isn't making the pay incentives. If this person at work um, is doing poorly at work, you can promise them all the extra money you want but they're not going to perform if they're worried because their father's dying or their marriage is on the ropes and they don't know what they're going to do with their kids. Um, And so that's reason number three that he didn't touch on, and I think that's an important thing. Another piece of the puzzle is that rewards discourage risk. Um, He mentioned earlier that when you have a grade assignment, um, that the people who are going for the grade are going to go for the easiest and softest way to get the grade because they're rational people, and to get the grade, if they have to do it the easy way, they're going to do it the easy way. Um, And so when you want, what you actually want is people to take chances, take risks, to engage with the material in new and fresh ways. And they're not going to do that if they know that there's something to lose on the line. And so rewards tend to discourage risk. 
He talks about, anybody um, of my generation do the Book It program? Is this familiar to anybody? Oh yeah, Book It, right? How many of you guys got pizza for reading books in school? How many of you guys read the quickest, easiest books that you could find because you wanted the pizza? Right? Yes, okay, there we go. I did, guilty as charged. Um, and so, again, rewards are going to discourage risk, and they're going to discourage people from actually engaging with the topic at hand uh, in, in a way that makes sense to them if all they're trying to get is the good grade or the pizza. How much more so do we want people to actually engage with the Christian gospel in a manner um, that isn't so, oh, gosh, they're not concerned with the goodie at the end. They're actually concerned with the thing in and of itself. Um, and the last one, he talked about this too, rewards kill motivation, specifically that intrinsic motivation. The part of you that actually is curious and wants to engage with the subject, the moment rewards enter the picture, you cease to care and you go straight for the reward. Um, and so uh, one of my favorite lines from the book, he actually um, talks about this. Uh, Cohn says this, he says, recently I was told about a Sunday school teacher who handed out candy bars when her students correctly recited Bible verses. It occurred to me that this, given the probable long-term effects, would be a shrewd tactic for an ardent opponent of religion to use. So one day the neo-atheists will be passing out candy bars if people recite uh, Bible verses, which is a weird world, but I guess that's one we could live in. And so again, the problem that we're trying to solve, we're all on the same page at this point, especially after Alfie's presentation. We're just not sure what we want to do. And we're feeling like Mr. Dewey Finn, or should I say Mr. Ned Schneebly, uh, from School of Rock. Yes, Tinkerbell. Summer, as class factotum, first I'd like to just say, welcome to Horse Green. Thank you. Do you have any questions about our schedule? Because usually now Miss Denham teaches vocabulary, then gives us a pop quiz, then she'll split us up into our reading groups. Track B's reading Okay, hey, hey, hey. Miss Dumbum ain't your teacher today? I am. <laughs> and I got a headache and the runs, so I say, Time for recess. But Mr. S, that poster charts everyone's performance. We get gold stars when we master the material covered in class. How do we get gold stars if we just have recess? What are these black dots here? Demerits. What kind of a sick school is this? <laughs> hmm? There you go. <laughs> Who's there right now, right? We're all there, we're all in. And so what I hope to do is actually give you uh, some hope that there is another, another way of doing this. And this comes from Thomas Groom. He's the guy I mentioned at the outset. He is a um, Catholic catechist, professor at Boston College in the theology department. And um, his book, which I will be talking about a little bit and giving you a rundown, is Christian Religious Education, Sharing Our Story and Vision. This has kind of been his life's work. He, he glommed onto this pedagogy uh, style, and he spent a lot of time trying to explain and grow and help people to recognize that when it comes, especially to religious education, we, we do things different than the rest of the world. That once you take the gold stars and the demerits off the table, um, things, uh, what do you have to do? And, and I, I'll give you the, the rundown in a second, but I wanna say I, what I like about the book is that it, it's thoroughly academic. It's not uh, a normal, sort of easy read, but he goes through this question of what is a human being? What did the Greeks think a human being was? How did we learn? Are we truly enlightenment rational creatures or are we something more? Um, what does the scripture have to say about who a human being is? And once we figure out the question of um, anthropology, how then can we turn that around to a question of pedagogy? 
And he starts from this anthropology place first, and I think it's really great. Um, and I'll let you read that part on your own, because the real big thing is the five movements that um, Thomas Groom has for helping to intrinsically motivate people as they study the scripture. And so he breaks it down like this. Step one is, um, he calls it naming present action, which is taking a subject and analyzing its current state. Uh, he likes to talk about using a generative theme. Some people call that like a hook to get people interested. Um, and the idea is you start by talking about the thing in kind of its abstract state. But then he asks that you take that and then you reflect on the current praxis, meaning um, you take what's going on out there and then you think about your own practice in the middle of it. Um, and we'll go through this in, in more specific detail in a minute here. Um, but you're asking why questions. Why are things the way that they are? How can we then understand it better? Then he talks about step three, which is, or movement three, discovering a new vision. So you've established and reflected on the way things are currently. You introduce uh, a new vision. This is where you start to introduce um, the part of the Christian life that you like people to talk about, this question of the gospel, this question of um, you know, maybe uh, creation or some other part of the Christian story. This is where you start to introduce that. And you get them to engage with it. You ask them uh, material, questions from the material and engage in some critical reflection. Next step, we call, it's called critical integration. It's when you compare and contrast um, your personal praxis, how things were at the beginning, things you already talked about in steps one and two, with step three. And you compare and contrast them to see how things are different. And then the last piece of it is inviting a response, the last step. Uh, and you're basically saying, given all of this um, as it stands here, um, how then would you like to respond to that? And inviting people to respond in specific ways about how your life could be different given this new story. And so uh, I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to run through the movements real quick with a very simple version of this that would be a Bible study I would use in Genesis chapter 1. And it would be something like this. Um, it's New York City. Art museums are everywhere. Anybody get a chance to visit any of the art museums while you're here? Where, where'd you go? Uh, the Tolkien exhibition. Anybody else do the Tolkien exhibition? Right? I, I missed that. I was really bummed I missed that. I wanted to go. Did you enjoy it? Is it it's worth going to? It's on my list. I'm going to do it if I can before I leave. Yep. Anybody else a museum, like art museum person here looking around? Right? New York's the place to do uh, that sort of thing. I love New York's tall buildings. Um, I learned this week that it took 7 million man hours to build the Empire State Building. That's a lot of man hours. And it was finished in 1930. It's going to be 100 years old, the Empire State Building, in the next little bit. And I imagine most of the workers who worked on it had died. But I wonder how they would feel. How do you think they'd feel seeing the building now in 2019, standing with all the other tall buildings in New York? How do you think they would feel? Throw, throw, out, a, throw out a word. Well, you started it, right? Well, how else might they feel? Proud, maybe. Right? 90 years next year. My goodness. And so we're, we're talking, see, we're talking about this idea of creating and building things, right? We're talking about art museums, art pieces, um, the you know, tall buildings, things people have made and built. We're talking about it in the abstract. So then we move on to the critical reflection, and I might ask you something like, have you ever made something that you are proud of, like the workers on the Empire State Building? What is it? Why are you proud of it? And maybe you're thinking about a, a song that you wrote or a piece of art, but maybe you've worked on your marriage for a long time, and it's something that you enjoy. A recipe, a woodworking project, an essay, whatever that is in your life. And so you're, you're thinking and sharing about that. And then I might ask you something like, have you ever received a handmade 
gift? What was it? Um, why do you think people choose to make gifts as opposed to buying them? And again, we're in the same idea of creating things and giving things to people. Um, and, and somehow we all think as a culture that handmade gifts are, are more, more, I say somehow, but it's true. We, we find more value in those handmade gifts that somebody put the time and effort into it. And so at this point, I'd pass around a copy of Genesis chapter 1, and we'd read it together, and we'd reflect on the, on the reading. I, I might ask a question like, how many, uh, how many times does God say the word good in Genesis chapter 1? Um, do you think God had, making, had fun making the world? Is it something he enjoyed doing? In Mockingbird, I might say, do you think he was intrinsically or extrinsically motivated to create the world? And then I might point out, for example, on the last day, God rested. God worked so hard to make this world right that he needed a break. What do you think God did on his break? You know, did he sleep, take a nap? Did he just bask and watch the world as it was there? Again, we're on step movement three. But now we're going to move forward to this integration. So I'm going to take this sort of Genesis story and look at this idea of creation as our world sees it and bring it together. Um, I might ask this. Um, when God made the world, uh, made people, he said it was very good. How does it feel to know that when God made us all, he didn't just say good, he said very good. And then I might ask, um, you know, the men who built the Empire State Building had a lot of pride in that building. Do you think God has a lot of pride in the world that he created? See, so we're taking the story we told earlier in the biblical story and kind of putting them together and we're comparing and contrasting it. And then we move on to this last, pray, that last part, the shared praxis part, where I ask, you know, if God spent so much care and time making the world, maybe how should we treat it, right? And all of a sudden, we have a jumping point to talk about creation care, if that's something that you're looking to work on in your church. Or maybe we um, start talking about, you know, other issues about how we treat one another because God created us as well. And if God spent so much time making this world and making you, um, how much must he love you in the middle of that? And all of a sudden, we have the gospel starting to show itself in the middle of this presentation here. And so that's a simple way of how we would run the shared praxis in a small group setting. Maybe get 8 to 12 people together, you're sitting around a table, you're running through these steps, and people are integrating that into their life. Um, to, to give you a biblical example, another one, um, I am gonna, we'll rehash very quickly Matthew chapter 16, which is the story in which we get Peter's famous confession that Jesus is the Christ. And so what, remember the first question Jesus asks, right? Who do people say that I am? Naming present action, movement one. What does the world say? And the world says, of course, some people say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet. And then Jesus turns around and says, who do you think that I am? We're reflecting on the current praxis in the, each of the disciples' lives. And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, bingo, Peter, like you are absolutely right. Like that was revealed to you from heaven. Now let me tell you about what that means. And he shares the present vision that the Son of Man must come and suffer in three days, rise again. And then, of course, we get the critical integration, and Peter has this very negative response to that. He says, I don't think so, Jesus. And he pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him, and, and Jesus turns around and, you know, get behind me, Satan. I don't recommend you do that in your groups unless it's a really bad situation. Um, but uh, but um, it, it worked for Jesus in the moment. And if you read towards the end of Groom, he, he tends to be one of uh, sort of a... Uh, let's just say Orthodox Catholics don't care for him because he tends to take this in a direction where he starts to, to make things a little wishy-washy in terms of, you know, do we actually need to tell them this story or are we just going to let the story happen to them? And it gets really wishy-washy. And, of course, we have things we think are true, and so we can't just sort of say, oh, well, you know, how does it make you feel? And there are wrong answers to that question. Um, 
And so, uh, you know, you're doing this integration piece, but then, of course, the new praxis is that when it does hit home for Peter, when Jesus dies, dies and rises again, Peter actually has a framework to go back and look to because he's done this work before. The new praxis hits home. And in fact, Luke's gospel specifically notes that uh, the women see the empty tomb, they talk to the angels, they rush back to the disciples, that uh, of the 11 remaining disciples, 10 of them say, oh, it's an idle wives' tale. But Peter is the one who actually gets up and runs to the tomb and check it out. Why does he do it? I presume because he's someone who has interacted with this material and has the insight to go forward with it. Um, so let me ask you this. Have you, um, has anyone experienced this kind of pedagogy before in the world? Is it something you've seen done where people are really interested in, in this particular five movement thing? Anybody seen that in, in their world? Is this not something? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, would you prefer this kind of method here to something that you have experienced before? Or would you think this is, there's, there's other ways that are good to do it as well that aren't this? Right. Has it been a positive experience to use that particular? Yeah. yeah. I used to, um, my church right now, we're going through a John Stop Bible study that does something similar to this, um, and I'm doing it at a nursing home, and we've got 80-year-olds, the brain snaps, synapses are firing, it's really great, like they're, they're, they're interacting with the Bible in a way they haven't before. Tim, did you? Yeah, I remember, I think I remember a long time ago reading about this, mm-hmm. and I'm in the process right now of helping our institution mm-hmm. focus on spiritually formative practices, mm-hmm. doing it in a way that's properly motivated. Right, right. And without remembering this, I think we're following these steps. Right. It seems like if you don't, then the issue of, oh, it's just a bunch of rules to follow, it's mm-hmm. just things that we're going to do. Right. It's focused only on the external habits and not on the, right. on the heart. On the, on the heart, the virtues, the disposition, that kind of thing. So. Right, right, right. So some people have experienced something like this before, um, even if it's not this explicit. And in fact, uh, Groom will say, if you get, feel comfortable, you can reimagine the steps, do them whatever you want, but as long as you kind of have this five-step movement, somehow in there, um, you're going to start to see people engage with this in a way they haven't before. I was thinking, I mean, good preaching always strikes me. Mm. And then I was thinking about the parables. I know that's not this session, but, um, <laughs> but Jesus teaching often seems to bring into it like kind of a present mm-hmm. dynamic. It seems very, uh, you know, Oh, what the sower goes up to sow, but then the descriptions are like a new vision. Like, no, that's not how you're supposed to sow. Right. That's not what you do with the weeds. Right. Right. So there's kind of like a a startling dynamic to it, and then a lot Mm -hmm. of times the invitation of response Mm -hmm. is not always very clear. Right. Like you might, three different people might walk away with a different. Oh, this is what this means for me, or this is Mm -hmm. what I will do with this. Right. 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 Story of the kingdom. Right. And it's tough, right? Because you presume Jesus is telling the story for a reason. Like, he wants people to get something. But there are times when the disciples pull Jesus inside and says, what, what, was, what was that? <laughs> Help us out a little bit here, right? But yeah, there is this attempt to try to, like, he's very good at sort of taking a present action. And then when he talks about the new vision, he throws the monkey wrench into it, right? Like, um, you know, the, the prodigal son parable is all about this because the, the great twist of the prodigal son is that when he comes back from his, you know, wild oats, he's not killed. Or when he even asks for the inheritance at the beginning of the parable, he's not killed. And the fact that he makes it alive and gets the ring and the robe and the sandals, did I get that right? Well, he gets all the things back 
like again, he's, he's, you know, people already know what the, the present action should be, and Jesus is saying, yeah, but look at this, and what do you think of this? And, um, you know, Jesus' parables are also about judgment, too, so there's a big lot of that, so I hope this is a non-judgmental way of kind of navigating this material. Um, let me ask you this. Do you think this method of education would take more or less work than you're currently doing in your educational situation? I think in terms of preparation for the leader and also in terms of interacting with the you feel like more work. Right. Because it's a higher degree of interaction. Mm -hmm. And you almost have to be more comfortable with the interaction, right? Because there's a lack of control involved. And you guys, some of you could have just stood up when I asked these questions to say, this is terrible, flipped your table and walked out, and I'd have no control over it. Um, but yeah, there, there does seem to be, at first, there does seem to be this element of like, wow, how do I navigate this? But I will testify that after doing it for a handful of years in parish ministry, um, what I, there is extra work to do it, but what I don't have to do is sift through a whole bunch of curriculum online where I have to figure out whether or not this is going to be teaching my congregation what I want. It's actually a framework where with a little extra effort, I can put together exactly what I want to have my congregation uh, interact with and that they can do it on their own without me having to sort of say, skip question number four because it's terrible and move on to question five because that's what the Christian publishing house sent. Um, that's that's okay. Okay. So yeah. What Lynn makes me think of is like how, um, how schools want to move towards like project-based learning, mm -hmm. like experimental learning in elementary or middle school classrooms students are learning through exploration and so like you hear you have the pleasant action that connects to whatever Bible story you're trying to connect to but instead of being like these are the facts you need to know so that you can live this kind of life right. they're like let's take a look at the empire of the world, like mm -hmm. you have right. and so it puts it into a relevant um, problem mm -hmm. and so then you know whether it's a youth group whether it's an adult ministry you're bringing in something that feels relevant or can be relevant so that it can be explored and learning can naturally come from there instead of being fed I think I think that's right. I think that's kind of what what the, the vision for this type of, type of pedagogy is. It's really about saying human beings, they're experience machines. Everything they do comes from a place of experience. And while we have this completely objective reality like Jesus actually bodily rose from the dead, um, we, we do have the implications of all that to teach. Um, you know, if we approach it from the human understanding that we are experienced creatures, um, then we're more likely to be able to engage with this reality in a helpful manner. I think that's right. Um, so a couple of final thoughts here. You know, if you think there's a place in your world um, that this would be helpful, I wonder, you know, what would that be for you? Just for you to reflect on that as we move forward. Um, if you have any anxieties about that, like I'm happy to kind of talk through them with you moving forward here. Um, and I guess the last question is, anybody notice that this presentation was actually structured around those five different movements? We talked about the Empire State. You know, we talked at first about what your Bible study experiences were. We talked about how people are motivated. We talked about the praxis. We had critical integration where I'm asking you, you know, what do you think about it? I'm inviting you to think about where you could put it in your own place. Um, this is really important to me, and, and I'm going to give you five final thoughts, and we'll wrap up here to, to, to kind of move on. Um, I think this particular method of doing education is meld, melds well with long gospel um, for a number of reasons. First, it eliminates the if this, then that language of the law. It's simply a matter of inviting people to re reflect critically on the text. Second, um, I think it avoids the temptation of control. 
I'm letting God do the work while we get out of the way. I went to the Storymakers presentation this morning. That was something they really harped on and I thought was really helpful to say that if we do believe God is, you know, if Jesus rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit is real, then they're at work in uh, our friends and our children and our peers in a way um, that we don't want to get in the way of. And so this is a way of kind of honoring that. My experience has been at Maya Church, you'll see these light bulb moments about people uh, interacting with their own lives, and people will have the same light bulb moments in interacting with God as well. And I have no business claiming that any of those things happen because of me. There's clearly God at work, and it's easier to see God's fingerprints when that's the case. It kind of removes me from the picture, which is helpful. Um, it prefer, preserves the integrity of the gospel in that third step. We don't have to water it down. We just present it for people to reflect upon. Um, I think it fits well. This is the fourth thing within the everyday life mission of Mockingbird here. I'm helping to bridge that gap between church and life. And in fact, I think that's why, I think, who, I think we said it over here, that this is related to sermons. I think that's what makes some of Mockingbird's um, best teachers and preachers um, so potent and powerful. Um, that there's somebody out there when they listen to PZ's podcast and he talks about the giant crab monster movies of the 50s, um, that their hearts beat in a million miles an hour because they're actually able to relate to this in a way that other people can't because of their own life experience. And so they might not fo uh, follow these five movements per se, but you can see these five movements at work in uh, Mockingbird's uh, preachers and teachers, whether it's the mocking cast, whether it's um, uh, hearing them preach in, off the mocking pulpit and some of these other uh, situations. And I think the final thing I, was gonna, I would say is that um, part of why this is so important to me is I'm heading up Mockingbird's uh, fledgling, which is a great bird joke, um, resource project initiative. Um, that part of the Mockingbird 2.0 um, uh, thing that Dave Zoll has a vision for is that in the next couple of years we're hoping to build a collection of resources for the church to use. Um, so that we're going to have um, some companions to a lot of the books. We already have the Long Gospel Study Guide that's to take Long Gospel, uh, the book, and then use it in small group settings. Our goal is to have as many of these as we can uh, available to churches because, again, we recognize that um, it's really hard to find good material. And if you've got someone who's putting together material um, that's good, that's easy, um, that you can use, that allow people to engage with it and to preserve the integrity of the gospel, um, that, that's something that's not really out there. And so stay tuned. I'm working on that project. It's going to take me a while, but um, the idea is to have a lot of these resources available um, before too long here. And I think this is a helpful way to sort of structure that um, so that people can jump on board and do this work without too much extra work. Um, and so in conclusion, I hope this helps reimagine some of our pedagogical understanding of how to teach, to pass the faith um, from one generation to the next. And I think that if the church learned to do this well, we'd find more people who actually love and act like Jesus as opposed to people who didn't do it for the grade. Thanks a lot, everyone. <laughs> mm -hmm.